0: You are now listening to the MESSED UP series. Welcome to the new series of uh, the MESSED UP seminars. We are at season two. So as season one happened last year and we have had um, me and uh, Someya as uh, as co-hosts. Well, actually this year I'm still co-hosting. They decided not to fire me, not sure why. But we ha- I have a new co-host next to me, that is Juliana. So uh, I hope that you will warm welcome, in, though they will mute uh, Juliana and your hearts as she's going to be our great co-host this, this season. And um, actually, uh, I'll let her talk immediately so that she can introduce what the seminars are about for all of you, whether you were here last year or not, you would know, therefore, what we do.
1: Thank you, Enrico. So hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to MESSED UP. Uh, MESSED UP was an idea of the Secret Society. We thought about it because we usually, as PhD students, look up to academics and look up to PhD students who are far ahead from us and think about how did they do this? How did they deliver such a beautiful presentation? How did they publish this paper? How did they get this grant? And then think about ourselves and think, well, oh, I'm still messing up at things. But then as we were speaking about this, we, we, we noticed that part of what makes them be successful is their failures. They have learned from their failures. So Messed Up celebrates that. Our main goal is to encourage knowledge transfer among academics and hear, about, hear more about the other side of experience, the other not so fancy, not so successful side. That is the failures, what you usually don't talk about. So messed up talks about messed up moments. And and that is why we are here. That's why we have Patricio here. So so while while Enrico shares a meme, I will just give a, a little bio about Patricio. Patricio is a lecturer in the security and crime science department of UCF. He is currently teaching organized crime and his research is mostly focused on Mexico and more broadly Latin America and the Caribbean, on issues on organized crime, particularly extortion. He finished his PhD in security and crime science back in 2020. Now we're going to start this session by discussing a meme. That is what we usually do with Messed Up. We start with a meme that set, like resembles the topic of today. Our guest chooses the meme. So Enrico has uh, shared it now. Can you describe it for us, Enrico, please?
0: Yes. So. Um... We have that, that famous meme about uh, uh, Eddie Murphy saying that something cannot happen if you don't do the previous steps. And in this case, you cannot get rejected for a job if you don't apply for it. And um, this is actually because the theme of today is about uh, jobs and the fact that there are rejections, jobs don't, don't normally go straight into an offer at the first application you do. There are mistakes we make during job interviews or even in the CVs. And uh, Patricia was really interested in uh, talking about this, talking about why certain applications may go wrong and what was his experience on this. So Patricia, do you want to add anything about the uh, meme itself?
2: Yes. Um, you can hear me all right, OK? Yeah, yes, we exactly. can. So I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess. The talk I wanted to the chat I wanted to have about was about how to turn job rejections into strengths and how to build from them to then uh, learn from them and then uh, you know to eventually get the job that you want and I would like to just correct something that Enrico said so he said that you know sometimes we don't get jobs because there are mistakes we make and things like that but actually sometimes you can do absolutely everything wrong right right and it's just you know happens that someone else was slightly yeah. better than you they had you know stronger cv or or, or they were better suited for the job so you know don't feel bad about being rejected it's not necessarily that you did something bad it's just that um you know sometimes Uh, not necessarily
0: mistaken mistakes are something done badly but i completely agree with you yeah um the issue is more that um sometimes just uh people are like trying to do the things and uh maybe they thought that that was perfectly fine but just wasn't good enough for the com- the competition you have in some yeah, moments. Yeah,
2: exactly. Uh, because ultimately, you are competing with other people. And therefore, um, you know, you're, so there's two things. You have to be a good match for the position. And secondly, if there are two people that are well matched for the position, well, they're going to have to decide on some objective terms who is, um, you know, the better candidate, who's the strongest candidate. Um, yeah.
1: Great. so can you tell us about your experience on finding a job after yes. the PhD?
2: Okay, so first, actually, I would like to narrow it down. It's not so much about finding a job, but finding specifically. I wanted a you know full time lectureship. Like a, I wanted to be an academic. So um, I guess because right after the PhD, I had a postdoc in in, in the department as well. I was a teaching fellow for Latin America and the Caribbean, but that was only funded for two years. So I wanted to make sure I had you know. A, I have a family. I have, you know, I need to eat things like that. So I wanted to make sure I had a, a, a full time permanent position. And um, so, I guess the story goes back a little bit to when I was doing the PhD. Um, like many of you, m- many of you, I was doing PGTA work and some research assistant work in in some project that you know come up in the department. I was also lucky enough to take a have a part-time position in the political science department as teaching fellow for quantitative methods so all of that really helped but you know a, about maybe eight nine months before i was sort of due to finish uh there was a, a sort of growth sport in the department where they hired they, they published like three or four vacancies if i remember correctly that was a time yeah four that was a time when enrico was was hired and, and some of my other current colleagues. Uh, but anyway uh, so they published this this uh, uh, vacancy and one of the um, specialisms that they wanted was on organized crime so I thought you know uh, well that's my specialism I wasn't nearly as confident that I was you know strong enough to get that position but I thought you know the hell with it you know if I I don't apply like I don't know when there will ever be another like organized crime position uh, opening up it's not a very common uh, area so I thought you know it's better to apply and having someone else tell me you know, you're know you not you didn't get it uh than not applying and then just regretting it all, all, all my life um well not all my life but you know just not you regretting it
1: because anyway, right so... like the only case where you will 100 be rejected if you this is if you don't try exactly right?
2: exactly so like you already don't have the job so you know just might as might as well apply and so i guess one of my first lessons there was just to like apply even if you don't feel you're like strong enough if you feel like you're a good match for the position if you feel like you could really contribute like fit in that position it's a good point of view
0: yeah uh actually this is interesting and very important to say i mean both of us that have done this path patricia and i i mean are made but it's known that in job applications um women tend to be less secure about whether they are at the right level or not, and many times don't apply. And people that are less qualified but are men actually apply for those jobs. And uh, what you just said actually is crucial to think about, maybe I'm not the perfect candidate, but let's try and see.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so I wasn't sure if I even was gonna make it to the interview, but um, one of the things I learned about the application is that first, to get the interview it's actually not that difficult in the sense that as long as you you know whenever they publish a vacancy they publish a list of the required uh things that you know people need to have like a degree or, or and this one i was near completion so i could you know reasonably argue that was you know i was not too far away from completing um there was a you know uh, there was So, I mean, there were like certain departments, like, you know, publication track. I didn't have published papers yet, but I had a few on the like peer review process. So I thought, you know, that that counts. And uh, teaching crime science and organized crime. So all of that I had under my belt. Uh, Teaching experience I had was a part-time like a teaching fellow in another department. So that helped. Anyway, so once you put your CV and your cover letter, explicitly noting how you meet, meet all the criteria. It's very hard not to get selected for the interview um because you know it's uh essentially you take like you take all the requirements and then you move on to the interview and then they'll see so um yeah so that's what i did. i was very surprised when i got the interview and, and uh when i had the interview I prepared a lot i spoke to colleagues uh in the department like that were not in the interview panel i spoke to them to see you know what to expect and prepared and studied and uh i did my homework and i i when you get an interview you usually asked to do something for example in my case I was asked to propose a module um, like the module of my choice I could just propose something uh, other people get you know are asked to prepare a particular specific module or some other parts or other activities so I, I did a really good job I think uh, or, or at least I, I thought so uh, to prepare for that module and uh, I had the presentation we had a really good chat with the Panel. that was when we still had you know face-to-face interviews uh in-person interviews i don't know how that's going to be in the future uh but yeah uh, that's what happened and i felt you know very comfortable, conf- confident after the interview and i think we, they took about maybe two months or, or like longer it was quite a while for them to decide and at the end you know richard the previous head of department called me as like like you know i'm really sorry like you were really a strong candidate we were very um, you know Happy, but ultimately there was another candidate that was stronger. Therefore, we can't, you know, we couldn't justify giving the position to you, even if you, you were like. we uh, so, liked you. yeah.
0: Uh, aside from, uh, let's say, a question that goes even uh, before that, as uh, many PhD students may think about it, and I'll, I'll get to that later. Yeah. Um, but talking about this episode in itself, you were surprised you actually got invited to the interview. Yeah. And uh, that makes us think, so what do you think are the important elements in a CD? What do you think you may have overlooked that time and maybe going back, you think, oh, no, actually I did it as they wanted and yeah. that wasn't.
2: So I think the issues are one, usually one is much more critical, or at least I am much more critical with our own successes than other people can be. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit of, you know, don't judge yourself too harshly. And as I said, earlier if you so the cv and the cover so there's there's a cv but there's also the cover letter if they're both you know explicitly um you explicitly tell the panel that you meet the criteria i for example the criteria says you know uh, a phd is required and you say i have a phd like you have to like put it in bold and big letters because they're going to read a hundred applications so you have to make sure you stand out and um in terms of like CV, I would say there, of course, this is talking about applying to academia, I'm sure if you apply to another job, like in, in industry is going to be different. But in academia, you know, there are no rules other than, first of all, you know, you start with your education, your most important thing, then it depends if you're applying to a research heavy position, then you're going to highlight your research, research work. If you're applying to a teaching heavy position, you're going to apply to, your, you know, you're going to highlight the teaching uh, stuff you've done. And um, yeah, so I guess that's that's like i mean there are plenty of materials and, and coaching out there so ucl has a um career service that's pretty good i actually use them uh, to sort of go over my cv and things like that to get tips on how to improve uh, but overall it's uh, the most important thing is that you speak in one the language that the that the committee is looking for so if, if they you know talk about evidence-based teaching that you make sure you highlight how you've introduced some of that uh, practice in your teaching. And you explicitly say, I've used evidence-based teaching in my pra- in my teaching practice. And you, you know, explain how you've done it. So I think that's what I would say about that.
1: So Patricio, how did yes. you recover from that re- okay. re- rejection? Right, yes. Because you've put in all the effort, you've done your homework, you've talked to people, and then you get this re- rejection. So how do you move on from yes. there?
2: So uh, yeah, that's the interesting part. So when I, after I spoke to to Richard and, uh, and then to another uh, committee member, so usually when you know you you are allowed to ask for feedback and, and that's what I did and, and not everybody's gonna give you feedback. I mean, it's after the interview, it's more likely you're gonna get feedback than just after just a desk rejection if you didn't make it to the interview. But after the interview, it's very likely that you can get feedback. And so I spoke to several of, of the panel members and they told me like, it was great, you know, really we really like you, you you actually you did very well in the interview, but on paper just weren't strong enough, you know, because you required publications and you didn't have anything published yet, even though there were several like things on the pipeline and there were other people that did have publications. And you know, you said you were close to your PhD, but you know, you're still like you know, a few months away from that, you still haven't like you know entered into the CRS and things like that. So all of those things sort of mattered. In my case, there's also the element that as I am, um, I'm not from the UK and I needed a a work visa to work here. So the department had to demonstrate, you know, legally that I was the best candidate uh, for the position. So there's a lot, there's not a lot of room for um, arbitrariness and and like the, the decisions that committee, like selection committees have to do are very, have to be justified in objective terms, because then someone also like, if someone feels that you know they weren't given the job unfairly because they were discriminated or something they could you know ask sue or something like the university and the university has to demonstrate that the person they hired was actually the best so even if you ha- you know get along like incredibly well with the uh, members of the interview panel or whatever if on paper you're not the strongest candidate then that's really going to affect you so what I did then I made a plan that if I wanted to, like I wanted a lectureship in the future I was going to devote all of my energies to like build up the parts of my CV that were lacking, and right. so I put a lot of effort into publishing to get to get at least uh, two papers out there before the next time before uh, the next interview I had, and then I also some of the papers that were under uh, uh, under review I posted as preprints so I could also have some tang you know tangible evidence that. Those papers are, exist that they're out there because if you just say, you know, manuscript in preparation, people don't really know whether the manuscript is in the first stages or it's like completed, but it's just waiting to be reviewed. And um, yeah, and then something else that happened is that UCL changed their uh, hiring practices in, in, in the sense that lectures were moved up from grade. Uh, so you couldn't be hired as a lecturer as, you know, in, in the previous uh, wave of lectureship, but you had to be hired at a higher grade, and that involved. Uh, more requirements for for being hired as a lecturer so when that happened that was when I was already working in uh, as a in in my postdoc Um, I had I approached my line manager and I told them that I wanted to strengthen up some parts of my CV so if you have a good line manager in a temporary even if if it's a part-time position or something like that they're always a good line manager wants you to succeed and wants you to improve so I told them, you know, I really want to get a lectureship in the future, and I, and I feel I need to strengthen my uh, teaching experience. Because I had been a PGTA, I had been a teaching assistant for quite mm-hmm. a few years, but I had never been responsible for actually organizing a module, delivering right. the module, things like that. So I approached them and I told them, you know, I would like to have that. And um, that was with Kate, who offered me to be co-convener of her module.
1: So, and at some point, did you doubt about getting a job in the academic sector? Like you got a rejection, right? And you didn't yeah. fulfill all the criteria. Did you think I might as well go for a different kind of job? Or did you just say, no, this is what I actually want and I'll work for it?
2: No, I mean, I guess I, I knew I wanted to be in academia. And my guess the question was where uh, in academia, like, mm-hmm. uh, because I was looking for so one of the things, if you're looking for a job, parentheses, if you're, you're looking for a job in the academic sector, set up a uh, alert at jobs.ac.uk. And so that every time a vacancy published would say that crime science or forensic science or something like that is published in UK and across the world, actually, every time it's published, you're going to get a notification from that. So I, I used to see that. And every time I would you know, see different vacancies and say, oh, this one fits, this one doesn't fit, this one I'll apply to. this one, this one I'll apply, I'll apply for this one. Um, but I really wanted to stay at UCL and I really wanted to stay in the department and I really wanted to stay in London. So that, I guess, it was a bit discouraging that I didn't get that. And I wasn't sure when the department, if the department was ever going to open new vacancies, but luckily they did. And uh, so I took all the, you know, stuff I learned from the first interview and to make sure, that my CV was as strong as it could possibly be for that second uh, interview or that second uh, application to, to the department. And um, yeah, the, the I was lucky to, uh, to get it. You're, you're giving a lot of
0: wonderful hints, Patricia. And just to say one that I think is, is a key, actually, throughout the PhD to start building up towards the career we would like to do is exactly that of looking at the CV and identifying the weak spots. Yeah. Because I mean, it's perfectly normal to have weak spots, and it's perfectly normal even to arrive um, to the application with some spots that are not as strong as others. Um, the point is being conscious of these type of situations and doing everything possible to to uh, heal those type of situations by making efforts towards it. Exactly as you have done, that that is that is really really great because that means you focused on what you wanted to do and. Uh, um, on that point of view my suggestion is something i said in the past as well and i've heard other people in the department saying it as supervisors uh let's say halfway through when one year and a half is left more or less of the phd is actually to start thinking about what could be the type of activities i should do to strengthen my CV before i finish my phd uh because in this way you can actually set it up and um Before we get to this, I actually wanted to ask you something else uh, that is still related to the PhD life Um, what was your decision process, I mean. When we are in the middle of the PhD or even at the beginning, we may have what we would like to do, but we are not sure that will be what remains, I mean I have a friend of mine now is an academic. But in the last year of his PhD we were in the office together and. I don't know how many times he changed his mind. Now I'm going to academia. Now I'm going to, it, it was impressive. Literally every two weeks, there was a change. And so what was your decision process at that point of view? What was making you think different aspects?
2: I don't know. I think when I started the PhD, I was more, I wanted to be more like in between government and academia. Like I wanted to be in, like a, in a government role, but that still had a, a lot of research based. But I guess as I've matured into the PhD and, and learned more about what academics do and how, and that you can actually have a nice life and nice career as an academic, um, at least in, in the UK and Mexico, I'm not so sure. Uh, I did, um, yeah, I realized that that's what I wanted to do. I, like, I, I love doing research, I love teaching, and it was really not much of a decision for me. Um, yeah, the big question for me was where? did I wanted to, go to you know, Did I want to go to the US? Did uh, I want to go to um, Australia, New Zealand, which I, I hear like it's one of the best places to work as an academic, but it's just too far away from family and things like that. And, um, or, you know, going back to Mexico, which was also an option. Um, and I guess what I, what I mean, one thing to consider is that even if you're making a decision to be in academia, it doesn't have to be the, the you know decision that defines your career for the rest of your life. There are people that change careers and that's perfectly fine. There are people that, you know, sort of divide their time between academia and, you know, government or, you know, you may want to create a startup then or have a business. And uh, even, for example, uh, consider the academics that, you know, the designed the, the uh, COVID-19 vaccines. Like a lot of them are still academics in Oxford, but they also created a company and spun it off. And now they're sort of billionaires and academics so which is a nice combination uh, but uh, yeah i guess everybody's path is different and you have to be uh, one sort of do a lot of self-exploration and reflection to think like what do you want to do how do you see yourself in, in five ten years but then also be open to the fact that you can change your mind and, and uh, move to other areas mm-hmm. And also yeah. it's
1: not a straight line, right? Yeah. Like it's also your decision, but your family's decision. Yeah, absolutely. Not all of us who are completing a PhD have families, but there are probably many other factors in play other than your just your professional career, right? Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Um yeah, so in my opinion, I mean
0: there's no ideal job to apply to. I mean, there's jobs we love, there's jobs that we believe are great. But at the same time, there's also a lot of factors to consider. Um, I made an example. A big doubt for anyone in the, cyber, in the cyberspace who love academia is whether though the time they do in this way is actually worth because if they were going on a private company, they would easily uh, double the money. Yeah. And then you evaluate, okay, is it... The fact that I can do whatever I would like to, in terms of research, for instance, more valuable than earning X much more by not being, there's a lot of evaluations that are obviously on different scales, depending on every single person. I think on that, on that point of view, I think one of the keys is asking maybe, yeah, for suggestions, but uh, not asking for taking the decision for you, like suggesting a decision yeah. for you.
2: The other issue that is that, especially you know in academia, it's very rare to go from your PhD straight to a permanent like uh, academic position. It's very rare. I think Enrico is one of the you know few that actually did so. But uh, in general, um, you usually go first through a postdoc. That it could either, either be as part of you know uh, like a, a bigger research project headed by your PI another PI. Uh, or you could get a grant, like a postdoc grant uh, to do to, to, to like a fellowship to uh, lead your own uh, research project for a few years before jumping onto an, an academic career. Um, you might... Uh, get a a teaching only position Uh, so if you're interested in academia teaching only positions are a bit tricky because they leave very little time for research and eventually if you want to move into a a full-time academic position such as a lectureship you do need to do some research so you know sometimes that's the only option you get and that's fine and thankfully nowadays some universities ucl in particular has been more flexible allowing teaching-only positions to tr- to transition to uh, full academic positions, which combine teaching and research. Um, but yeah, that, that it is something that just to look out for. But yeah. So there uh, are
1: three possibilities in academia from what I'm getting from you. Yes. So there's like postdoc, which would be only research, then there's teaching only, and then there's lectureship, which is a mixture well, of both. Overall,
2: uh, in academia, there's uh, three, I think maybe four, but but four career paths, I would say. and And so just to step back a little bit, one thing you want to sort of try to make sure when you're thinking about your future is look through the career framework in a university and see like, you know, the progression thing, like the type of careers they offer, and this is what we're gonna talk about now, uh, but that, that, and see what requirements they have for say entry and things like that. And that will really help you sort of plan ahead what you need to work on uh, now to, um, to make sure that when, when the application opens, you are in the strongest position to, to apply. But anyway, as uh, going stepping back then to the question about the career paths in academia, I think there are essentially four, right? At least so one is research only. So if, you know, so that could be as a so a postdoc is, is just a generic term for what the first job you get after you know your PhD. It's not yeah. a particular uh, degree or anything like that but technically
0: though just to be sure when they are published uh, from universities they are called research associates yeah research, associate. research assistant doesn't have to have a PhD research yeah. a researcher should ask associate yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah so there's a research only position you could even you know be a principal researcher at devote if you hate teaching that's good they're usually very they're not that common um, because you know a lot of the income universities get is from teaching. So unless you bring, if you bring your own grant, uh, you know, you get this multi-million dollar, multi-million pound grant, Mm -hmm. uh, then you can, yeah, you can pretty much- So that's then the
1: burden is on you, right? To bring in the money to fund your research.
2: Yeah, yeah. Or unless you get like an endowment or something like this company to fund your research for many years, that's one. The other is teaching only, uh, which is, um, before they were called teaching fellows, now they're called lecture parenthesis teaching. Uh, so that, you know, your main activity is going to be teaching. And if you love teaching and don't like research, that's a good option. Then the standard academic career is um, both uh, teaching and research, where you're going to devote around half of your time uh, to each activities. Um, there's, I guess, the fourth career option in a way is to do consultancy, to like be an academic that does consult, consultancy to companies. So it's a bit like research, but you're not, it, publishing as much as uh, just uh, you know, doing research for private companies for specific uh, issues? Yeah. I guess it would be the less common of the sort of uh, Yeah, I mean, period. consultancy can have
0: different degrees. You can do yeah. one-offs every once in a while, even if you are in another path of these. Uh, Obviously, those are passing through NDAs. Technically, as yes, they are extra your job in such case that you wouldn't do them during the 37 hours of the job. Yeah. Uh, and all of that, but yes, uh, it, it's possible to do consultancies at any point. Actually, UCL has UCLC. that is made on purpose for you to uh, find consultancies. And they take a percentage and everything. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's it's a path uh, on many I would, aspects.
2: I would I would add that maybe another path that it's not necessarily an academic career, but it is it is a career in academia in a sense is like some. Professional services position are open to people with PhDs. For example, those that uh, advise other researchers on how to get grants, uh, project management of large projects, um, right. uh, engagement, communications—all of those. You know, for some positions, you might uh, you you might not want to. Like some yeah. people with PhD go to that, those positions as well. That's perfectly fine. Right. Managing so- labs, things like that.
1: So if we go back a bit, Patricia, we have here in the in our audience, many starting PhD students, some of us are halfway. What would you say for us who are still deciding? I myself, am very interested in academia, but then many of them might be considering, well, should I go for academia? or Should I go for something else? What should I start doing now to prepare myself so that by the time I end my PhD, I'm like a very good candidate for what I'm looking for? What would you tell us?
2: I guess that's the most important question of the talk uh, in a way that, um, so what Enrico said a a while ago about looking at your CV critically and saying, you know, these areas are weak, these areas are strong is important, uh, but it has to be qualified that it's, so CVs are not weak or strong in abstract, they're weak or strong for a particular position. So first thing is think about the type of positions you would like to apply for like what where where would you see examples of other universities or your the universities you want to go to uh, and see what they ask for what's the minimum requirements they ask for what's the common things they ask for then look at your CV and say okay so I don't have this bit I have this bit about a little bit I have you know nothing from this and things like that and then make a plan so that you can effect, you know uh, effectively improve those areas strengthen those areas so that when when those positions and if those positions open, um, you are you know, in a good position to, to apply to them. Um, yeah, it's all about being strategic, about knowing where you want to go, and then. So you're never gonna you're not gonna get a PhD if you sorry you're not gonna get a job if you worry about getting a job by the end of the PhD. You have to start thinking about that, you know, since the middle of it, and start. Yeah. Like pointing your. Let's say, uh, for example, when I was doing PGTA work in, in the department, there was a time when I and, and doing another term of PGTA work wasn't really going to add much because I had already been a PGTA for you know several modules, several years. So maybe it was time to then look at a different position. That's when I got a, a part-time teaching fellowship at, at another department. And and that was great, but teaching so much also neglected the 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 uh, research side. So, uh, you know, instead of returning to the teaching fellowship for a second year, I turned that down and started focusing only on research, so I could make sure I have, uh, you know, more papers published, so that by the time when the time came, I was a good candidate. So, it's it's a good it's a balance between you know saying no when what's knowing when saying yes to an activity is going to strengthen your your uh, profile. And when saying no is better for your strategic plan, you know, if you because we have little time for everything, okay, limited time, so you have to make sure that whatever you're doing counts towards the requirements of the uh, strategic plan you've made.
0: Um, Patricia, we have a, a um, question from the from Nadine for from the audience. But first, I wanted to point out another a word you use that I think is great and not just in preparing the CP yeah. in terms of the skills you gain strategically, uh, being, uh, using strategy.
2: Yeah.
0: That's also when we uh, actually apply. I mean, people, I hear people sometimes, oh yeah, I applied to a hundred jobs today and uh, it won't be effective for a very precise reason. I mean, when you apply with uh, LinkedIn, for instance, there's those easy apply that already put the things in place. But if you are drafting your PhD carefully, it can really make the difference because as they were saying in psychology, social psychology aspects uh, in a course I followed, uh, there's a question of saliency on on what you put in the CV that needs to stand out somehow. But also because like if you're applying, I make this example for the information security group in computer science um, and uh, the Cybercrime center in Cambridge. So two top universities, two groups that both focus on uh, uh, cybercrime. still it's not the same application. There are some little things that need to be tweaked in the personal uh, statement and uh, show that you actually tailored your application for that. So aside from strategic thinking, as you said, from let's say the middle of your PhD yeah. throughout, also when you get to the applications is important to, to characterize those.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, being strategic is not only about, as you said, you know, getting yourself ready, but also knowing to which uh, applications you should apply, to which positions you should apply. Um, I remember having to pass on on several uh, that I thought were very interesting because sometimes uh, I would say, "Oh, this one's like a really interesting, but it's not exactly my field, so it's going to be harder to apply, uh, to justify it." And and uh, this one's looks great, but I just don't have the time now because I have to finish, you know, this other thing. Uh, so. I do know of people that have gone, you know, applied a hundred to hundred different positions and eventually got it, um, but I guess the question is: is you, is is it worth your time? You know, could your time be used more effectively to, you know, apply to just the the very most uh, the ones you feel most like confident about, and then um, using the time you have left to say improve those applications or work on your papers or something like that. Um, so uh, Nadine asked a question. Uh, yes, we... I was about oh, okay. to read it. Okay. Um,
1: so Nadine has asked, how exactly does your salary work when you are a lecturer? On research grants, you specify the costs for your time. Does that basically just pay the department for your time, or does it pay on top of your lecture-based salary?
2: I, I don't know. So I've never gotten a grant so yet. Uh, so, um so yeah I yeah. think I think it I think it pays to the department. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: I would love to say it pays us on top of our salary, uh-huh. but uh it's not like that. I think it pays to the department.
2: If you do consultancy, um, yes. that that can pay into your into your consultancy
0: business. can pay on top of yeah. your salary, while uh, uh when we talk about research grant, yeah. it pays basically it tells the department part of the money that otherwise you would spend for uh, for him, for them, for their salary, uh, would be spent instead by us. Yeah. But they would focus on uh, this specific topic for that yeah. amount of time. So That, that is what
1: like UCL, right? Or is it like the, the work like everywhere? So
0: let's say EPSRC. Um, I do an application for uh, a EPSRC grant. I get it, maybe with uh, a postdoc position, uh, that has 100% on this topic. And uh, my position is 20% because I am the principal investigator. 20% means one day a week, basically, for the duration of the whole thing. That means that I am still employed by UCL, but that one day a week I'm working on that topic. That may not necessarily be that every day I have to dedicate one day to get it wrong. It's more objectives related, that that percentage. But uh, uh, that is the idea. One of uh, one of the things there is basically you are doing research that is of interest for the department. So if I am applying for an EPSRC grant, but it has nothing to do with uh, the research I do in the department, the department may say, "Yeah, but we, it's not fine for us." And that's perfectly understandable because if the research would be about uh, I don't know colors in paintings. Even though I may use my skills uh, with AI, whatever, that's not what the department uh, has hired me for.
2: I don't know. If you were doing forensic science, I'm sure colors and paints might be relevant to some forensic industry. Yeah, no, well, yeah. I, I think it was
0: uh, like important paintings, maybe detection of uh, uh, fake paintings. That was an idea I had years and years ago. Well, that's, ago. In, that's relevant yeah, for, yeah.
2: art tech. And things like that. And yeah,
0: but in such case, there would be a security aspect of it. Yeah. If it was just a, oh, look at the colors in a new way in paintings, that's purely art, yeah. I don't think the department would be with uh, me in uh, it's working also the this. the uh,
2: So uh, to complement a little bit what Ndika was saying, also, if you bring enough money, like some grants allow you to buy out your teaching time so that you mm-hmm. can devote more of your time to research instead of uh, dividing You know, you, if you get a really big grant, then you can just uh, not teach for some years and devote yourself only to those projects, for example.
0: So we have one last, let's uh, say, question of the, of the guidelines we have for, for the session, I'd say. And then uh, we go, we'll go towards the, the end with the usual format that we have had also in the previous year. Um, So, what would you say are the potential pitfalls during a work interview, and how can we prepare for it? Uh,
2: So, there are two types of uh, interviews I've had, and I think there are generally two types of interviews you can have, and so how it goes depends on those, those two. One is a bit more unstructured and it's more like a conversation with you and the panel and it's a bit free flow and it's really have to be on your toes to make sure you have to prepare for a lot of different angles and different questions you're going to get. And uh, the other is more structured and you have like all candidates get exactly the same questions, all candidates, you know, and so that's a bit more less stressful. I mean, you don't know beforehand the questions, uh, but, but it does feel a bit more rigid. So don't feel you know bad if your interviews feels too boxy or something. Maybe that's just the format that the panel has chosen. Um, in, in my case, in the first face-to-face interview, was a bit more free flow. Was you know um, a bit more like a conversation.
1: You also um, knew the people on yeah, the interview panel. In my right? case
2: it's, it's probably not comparable to everyone's because I was interviewed by the department, so I knew most of the people who were interviewing. Usually, there's always one external. Um, external um yeah. of the panel from our department from another university even so that for in my case in the first panel was someone from australia and in the second one was someone from another department here at ucl one thing i did do that i i recommend everybody to prepare for the interview is i read up on uh the different because you, you can ask like, beforehand who's going to interview you uh and uh, or usually you're told so I read up on them and I read up what had they published recently, what, what did they teach, what did they work on to make sure that I sort of spoke in language that they would understand. Uh, and also, I, I mean, I also, you know, for example, uh, it's going to sound maybe bad, but in my first interview, one of the, so the external uh, member of the panel had published a paper on using Formative uh, peer peer marking as a form of formative assessment in criminology courses. So I made sure I brought that up in the interview. Um, as so you
1: knew the, he was going to be there in the interview yeah yeah yeah. Panel. You're told
2: you're told who's a, who's the member of the panel who's going to be okay. in the panel. So I read you know read about them and I read their papers, and so I, I made sure that in the interview in the interview I sort of they uh, sort of uh, you know brought up that paper as an evidence of my use of, of uh, Teaching-based, evidence-based, you know, teaching, Uh, and I'm not saying that made a difference or not, but it's sure—it certainly, you know, helps uh, the interviews remember you and put them, put you in 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 their sort of good side. In the second interview, also, uh, the person they interviewed me, uh, I also mentioned something about a book they had recently authored. Uh, So I mean, yeah, so all of those little things can help to put you in a bit, you know, more. Favorable, favorable light, I would guess. I mean, don't be a suck up, like don't be you know, too obviously trying to like win them over, but it just makes you more relatable, I guess, more identifiable.
0: I think one point also there is uh, uh, you made yourself memorable. Now that, yeah. there have been studies actually, I've seen a video about, uh, about one of them where they actually took a recruiter, a very expert recruiter for a position and uh, they gave her they gave her a small thing to give her idea of how well she was thinking about the person that she had in front. And they had a person who did a very good interview, a person that was let's say so and so, uh, and a person that was actually an actor, the last one uh, that did everything possible bad, like entered with the bags like uh, with with food in it and put it aside, and mm-hmm. things were falling, things like that. Um, and one thing they noticed was that in an interview, as well as in many other things, it takes like five, six, at least, uh, good points to recover from one bad one. But also what they noticed was that there was already in 15 minutes um, interviews, after five seconds, you already had a clear difference between the three candidates. And that's the question of standards. That's scary. Yes. But that's also a question of standing out because it, it, one thing that the recruiter said and you clearly see in the video is the first candidate, the one that did great, entered the room, smiled, gave the hand. Okay, now it's complicated with COVID, but that was probably like 40 years ago or so. Um, gave the hand. They had quite a, a good uh, vibe with them. Obviously, it's normal to be nervous. I, I would bet everyone's nervous before a job interview, but that, that helps a lot. Now, actually, I would like to quickly ask you one thing about uh, your interviews. In yeah. terms of uh, a lot of people talk about lying to get the job, lying at the interview. Um,
1: you mean what, like enhancing certain things or like? Not just, just enhancing. Up lying. I
0: mean, enhancing a bit, I wouldn't say it lying. I think that's still fine if you are able to back it up. Um, so, enhancing a bit is different from saying something that is completely like, a bit or this much, let's well, put it that way. Um, what's your opinion about this, Patricia?
2: Well, absolutely don't. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're going to, I mean, of course, it's a bit difficult in abstract terms. But uh, if they're asking you, oh, can you, well, uh, it depends. If they ask you, if they ask something like, oh, well, no, how many papers have you published? And you say 15, but you know, publish only 10, then don't lie because they're probably it's something that's obviously easy to you know uh, check if they ask oh can you teach a you know course on crime and and, and the media you say you know yeah of course you can maybe you've never like you know studied media or anything like that but that's not such much of a lie as you know yeah you're putting yourself you're putting yourself out of your comfort zone in in terms of what you can teach in the future if you're never taught that but there's no reason why you can't do that if you say study and, and prepare for that so there's right. a difference between, say, lying about something that's verifiable and just, you know, not being, uh, yeah, like I, I had a friend that was hired for a position in politics and communication. They had never really, uh, uh, you know, worked on that field, but they prepared for the interview and so they got the job because they, um, you know, they could teach about politics and communication, even though, even though they hadn't before.
0: Uh, I like this. I mean, there are, especially when we are not applying for jobs uh, in academia, but more in companies, there are situations where the recruiter wants to push to see where's your limit. And that the thing of uh, saying, I don't know at this point is perfectly normal. Yeah, And uh, actually they want to see where is the limit. Um, one funny thing that happened to me actually, in that point of view was uh, before the PhD technical interview and um uh, the guy was like, uh, "Yeah, so what do you think? Are you going to do with uh, with this job?" I was, "Well, you're one of the main producers of uh, military ships in the world, uh, and uh, I am a telecommunication engineer. So most probably I will be working on things related to radar, sonar, transmission of signals, and all of that." And he looked at me straight in the eyes, and uh, adding some swear words with respect to the version I will say uh he was we don't we are not we're not interested in uh in this because we buy those systems and we put them together so what are you thinking are you going to do at that point i was like uh um, um really uh, if it's not about this i'm not sure i would know <laughs> and then he, and he described but he wanted to see my attitude in reasoning yeah. about the different things and
1: yeah and and in that case i i wanted to ask you patricio and of course enrico you have surely gone through this i i was thinking that at some point in the interview you can mess up right you can get too nervous and perhaps say something that wasn't right uh or you weren't thinking right like would that would it be okay to just say okay just pause like get yourself together and just start again
2: absolutely um yeah i I actually i wanted to to share like a short experience I, I had with the interview. So I don't know if many of you, like uh, the, the PhD students, maybe maybe not all of you know Richard Wortley uh, because you know uh, he was head of department, but he left uh, I think last year. So not maybe especially the new uh, students might not know him. But he was you know he's a wonderful guy. He's really lovely like in, like he's great. But in interviews he was really tough. Like you he was really tough like he was like a poker pal. you couldn't tell whether he was happy or not and he was like asking probing difficult questions. He was really tough and I remember to two, like one question in, in, another, in an interview I got for the postdoc he was there and he was asking me, you know oh you that position was about teaching like problem-oriented policing crime science to police officers uh, you know in Latin America. So he was asking, you know, you get to a room and you have a student that says, you know, oh, that's bullshit. Like, what you're teaching doesn't work. Like, how do you deal with him? And I'm like, I, and I tell him, oh, well, I explain to him, you know, why it works and the evidence. I mean, yeah. But then he says, you know, it doesn't work at all. He's like, gets really angry and things like that. He was like, it doesn't matter what I said. He was always saying like, you know, that this guy was coming back at me and and uh, I, I was I was getting a bit, you know, like nervous and things, but there was a point where it just couldn't say, you know, well, you know, I'll just stop fucking, focusing on him and then focus on the rest of the class. Because, I mean, ultimately what he wants to do, you know, what he wanted to do was just see how I sort of reacted to the pressure right. and things like that. Um, yeah, so don't feel bad if your interview is a bit tough. You know, it's just sometimes part of the act. Um, yeah. But they might actually be very lovely people.
1: <laughs> that's good, that's encouraging. <laughs>
0: This has been an amazing session. Loved it, all the minutes of it. Uh, We are five minutes away, so we jump straight to the last bit, uh, where actually we ask you for three key lessons, tips to give to uh, our audience.
2: So the first lesson I would say, be strategic about the job you want to get. Think about the job you want to get and see what that requires and make a plan, like a specific plan to know how to get there, how to improve your profile Uh, So that you're in the best position when those applications, when when those positions open up. Um, The second of all is don't be discouraged if you find, I mean, don't be discouraged from applying if you think you're a good fit, even if you don't think you're strong enough. Like it's better Mm -hmm. to get a no for a position that you think you fit really well, even if you're not the best candidate, uh, than just sitting, sitting it out. And that's because also sometimes, you know, there might not be enough candidates for the position anyway. So, even if you're not the super strongest candidate, you're, you're, not, but you're, 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 you know, strong enough, you're a good fit. Even you might that. be the lucky one that's, yeah, it. <laughs> you might be that, you know, for that position, particular year, they're not that, you know, or maybe they ask a speci- something so special that only you know about, like very few people know about, and, and that's why you're a good fit. So, don't be discouraged, like, don't, don't stop from applying if, if you think you're not strong enough. And the last one is don't be discouraged if you don't get the job because then you can use that experience to prepare for the next one.
1: That's a great, great tip. Thank you, Patricio. So I think we can wrap it up now. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Patricio. Thank you,
2: you so much for the invitation.
1: Yeah, it has been a great conversation and I'm sure there are lots of learned lessons here that we can take and start preparing for our search for jobs once we finish the PhD. And for everyone, by the um, way, yeah.
2: One thing I would like to add is, uh, you know, if if, if, I I benefited a lot from asking colleagues for feedback on my cover letters and CVs and things like that. So if you ever need help, and it's something I can like, I'm free. I'm happy to to help out if you reach out. uh, Reading out CVs and cover letters, uh, paying for paying it forward, as it were.
1: That's a great and very generous offer. Thank you.
0: So one quick thing, the two quick things before our closure is, uh, um, first, big shout to Martin and Sarah, who are doing an amazing job behind the scenes, always very helpful. You don't see how much we communicate behind the scenes with them that coordinate the work for me and making it much easier for us to manage everything. Second, videos will be on the website, uh, UCSSecretSociety.org, and uh, Spotify will have the podcasts related to the recordings of uh, all these meetings, including this one in time, a few days, one week, uh, that probably Martin will work on this is the one who does that. Um, other than yes, that-
1: We actually have Seasons one's episodes already available if you want to check amazing. them out. And then finally, just a shout out to everyone, if anyone thinks they could or would like to talk about their failure, their messed up moments, you're very welcome. Or if you have any uh, potential guests in mind, also reach out to us. We are interested in your failures, your messed up moments. Thank you everyone. See you next time.
0: This has been the Messed Up Series. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the series at uclsecretsociety.org slash messed up.